It's good to see y'all. I was uh, originally scheduled to speak last week, but my wife and daughter, they went to the ladies' conference uh, on the book of Ruth, and so um, we got just the one vehicle, so I had to switch to this week. Um, but seeing as how my subject is primarily on the topic of fear um, and it being Halloween, it seems like the Lord's timing was perfect, so... Uh, let's ask, let's ask the Lord to bless this time. Heavenly Father, King of the universe, Redeemer of my soul, in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus who is the Christ, I ask that you give us us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. I ask that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened so that we may know what is the hope of your calling and the riches of the glory of your inheritance. Amen. Uh, for those of you guys who like to have titles for messages, uh, the message this morning I have titled, Opening the Devil's Playbook, subtitled, How to Stand Against Fear. Hopefully that works. Um, those who know me, they're aware that I typically have a fondness for uh, teachings that are parables, similitudes, hard sayings, hidden gems, things that I like to dig out of the Word that most people don't see. And then I, sh- I share what the Lord teaches me about them. Um, today, however, I have to deviate from that and just, it's, I, I've got to bring a word that the Lord really, it's both a warning and it's meant to be also a comfort, uh, an encouragement. It's an exhortation as well. Um, it's necessary. It's a little bit shallower than I like normally, but it's targeted, and it, it's it's absolutely vital for this moment in time, especially for this American Christian church right now. Um, if you're if you're really tuning into what the Holy Spirit is saying, you can hear Him say, "We are getting so close to the events prophesied in books like Daniel and Revelation and etc. We are getting to that point. You, you can feel it." You can feel the time. It seems like it's compressing. We're getting to that edge, guys. We're getting close. It's almost end times. It's, it's, it is upon us. Um, I'm going to start reading in Deuteronomy. I should mention, too, if you, if you like to take notes and you can't have a hard, have t- a hard time keeping up because I'm going to read quick, um, get with me afterwards if you, if you need notes. That's, I got them. I'll start reading in uh, Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter, but let me set this up by telling you a story about uh, for, uh, our first president, George Washington. It's a, it's a story you won't hear in schools, you won't hear it on the news, but actual history records that as George Washington was being sworn into office for his first time as he was president, he actually stopped the proceedings and demanded that a Bible be brought and opened to the book of Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter. And then he invoked the blessings and the cursings found therein. Uh, George Washington actually called upon God to graft us, the United States, into the same covenant that Israel was under because he, like many of the founders of this nation, thought of this land as the new Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to argue that what he did was binding because that covenant was given to Israel, not us. And I don't think it applies to us in the same way at all. But still, when I heard the story... Something about it, I don't know what it was exactly, it captured my imagination a little bit. I found it interesting. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that although the blessings and cursings found there don't necessarily apply to us the same way, just that was for Israel, 
there is still a clear pattern that you can see um, that God follows as he judges nations. We see the same pattern really clearly as we study the history of Israel. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, you see its ups, its downs, uh, as it either followed or disobeyed God's word. We see the exact same pattern in other nations throughout history, especially with respect to how they treated Israel, how they treated God's chosen people while Israel wasn't a nation. Um, Over the centuries, nations have risen and fallen. Empires have reached their peak influence and power and been brought down primarily because of two things, how they treated the Jewish people and how they followed God's word. The natural question which jump to my mind then was, okay, if that's true, if there's a pattern there and we can see it, does Deuteronomy tell us where we, the United States, is as a nation right now? And I I believe the answer is absolutely it does. Um, remember Deuteronomy 28, how it lays out the terms of the covenant. So I'll, I'll read it from the New King James Version. It's a little easier to read. <clears throat> now it shall come to pass, verse 1, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. And these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, America may not have followed perfectly, and he clearly didn't, but there was, in fact, a time in our history when the majority of Americans were, in fact, God-fearing to varying degrees. And as a result, our nation indeed became the greatest nation that perhaps has ever existed on this planet, at least certainly in terms of power and the ability to project that power. Now, I'm just going to skip down to verse 15. This is where it starts to take a turn for the worse. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord lists a bunch of curses. Skip down to verse 28. This is the verse I want to highlight because I think this is exactly where the Holy Spirit showed me. This is where the United States of America is right now. It says, verse 28, The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. Madness, blindness, and astonishment of heart. Where is the United States right now? U.S. schools, elementary schools even, teach children that they can magically change genders just because they feel like they're a different gender. Parents who've gone to school board meetings to object to racist Marxist theology called critical race theory being taught in school have now been labeled domestic terrorists by the FBI. We're completely caught up in a clown world of upside-down madness. Look around. You can see it. You can feel it. It is wrong right now. We've turned from the God of the Bible. We've turned to other gods. But mostly, what we've turned to is ourselves. We've declared we don't need God. We have science. We don't need God's word because we're gods ourselves. And since we are gods... We're a law unto ourselves, and therefore there is no such thing as objective truth. Truth is relative, we see. In other words, we are blind 
We are blind men reaching out. We have no sense of direction. We have no, no standard because we've declared we're all our own truths. We're willfully and foolishly blind. We're listening to a 24-hour news cycle that lies to us about virtually everything. We're listening to them exaggerate the severity of a virus in order to ramp up our fear to such a degree that we would willingly hand over our God-given rights to a godless government. We're a nation in the grips of an astonishment of heart. What we're seeing is the Lord is actually right now judging this nation. He's abandoned it to our own lusts. He's judging this nation because this nation has rejected him and rejected his word. We've told him that he's not welcome in schools, he's not welcome in the marketplace, he's not welcome in most American homes. And now with all the woke churches who refuse to preach the truth, he's no longer even welcome in most American church buildings on Sunday mornings. This nation used to be primarily a Christian nation, one that exported gospel to all nations. We, we sent our, our missionaries and our gospel message all throughout the world. Now, instead, our nation exports democracy and tinkers in nation building as though somehow we figured out the secret recipe for freedom and it's democracy. How foolish. What gave this nation its freedom wasn't democracy. Democracy inherently trends toward a tyranny of the masses. It's why the founders of this nation intentionally rejected democracy. It's why we have a republic. We have a democratic republic. What gave this nation its freedom, its wealth, its power, it wasn't democracy. It was the Lord as we followed and obeyed his word, as we were submitted to his will. Historically, there are five indicators of a declining empire, which we see every time without fail as an empire declines. Number one, reckless living. I'll give you an example each time. Example, U.S. national debt is the highest ever, well over $23 trillion and counting. Number two, lack of personal responsibility. Example, rampant drug use, much of it legalized. Abortions. People who want to, or people who refuse to work, but get fed anyway, in spite of what the Word of God says, because of a government who actually wants us dependent on them. Number three, all uncontrollable migration. I don't don't even need to speak to that, do I? (laughs) Number four, undermining the family structure. Number four, undermining the family structure. Example, U.S. marriage rates have hit a new recorded low yet again this year. And number five, increased sexual immorality. And the example of that would be that half, half, literally half of the self-proclaimed U.S. Christians, when polled, said that casual sex between consenting adults is sometimes or always acceptable. Unbelievable. In the 1980s, there was a a former KGB operative named Yuri Bezmenov who defected, and he traveled around the country giving lectures on exactly how the KGB was already at work destroying this nation. Now, this is back in the 80s, during Ronald Reagan era. Uh, I 
highly, highly encourage people to watch one of his lectures online. Uh, several clips from his lectures that you can get easily enough. Just type in his name. There's at least one full, really well done, uh, full lecture on, on YouTube. Just type in his name and look for him. But Yuri described four steps that led, or that were going to lead to our eventual destruction, which today, Look ex- like he was prophetic. He, it looks like he, he got this straight from God. I'll, I'll briefly describe them. Uh, step one is what they call demoralization. And that's where the media, academia, entertainment industry, anyone in a position of influence who is sympathetic to Marxist ideals, and they, they're used to indoctrinate the youth. They needed, he said they needed between 15 to 20 years. And all you got to do is get hold of one generation, and it'll completely flip the United States upside down. And that that has happened. Number two, destabilization. Change the status quo. All old standards and institutions are undermined, discredited, and thrown out, especially targeted with religious standards. Number three, it's a crisis. Just like it sounds, you create a crisis, such as COVID-19, the self-inflicted supply chain problem we have right now, and then you offer a solution. You say, here we go, I've got the solution for you, and use the solution to take more power and more freedoms away from people. And then step four, what he called normalization. So the, the loss of freedom, such as pat-downs at TSA, mandatory masks and vaccines, etc. They're all accepted as normal. It's just... Then, and you hear it all the time, the new buzzword. It's the new normal. Clearly, we've been, as a nation, cycling through these four steps in varying degrees for years now. This nation is on the brink of social and economic ruin. Now, what's interesting here to me, and this is why I brought all this out, in this devil's playbook, there is no mention of any actual physical kinetic uh, engagement of any form. No military action was ever needed in order to conquer this nation. It is working. The only tools used the whole time are deception, lies, and fear. Why? Because the only weapons that Satan actually has are deception and fear. He can't, he cannot separate us from the love of God. Nothing can. So what he needs to do is convince us or trick us into walking away from God voluntarily. He cannot directly physically affect us at all. He needs a human agent to do that. Aside from lying to us and trying to make us afraid, he's actually got nothing. Uh, If there were more time, I'd like to say a lot about deception and how to oppose it. But for this message, I have to focus on fear. Um. I'm going to read from Revelations 21, just, and I'll read a few verses just for clarification. But give me a second here. Revelation 25, or I'm sorry, 21, verse 5, it says, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give of the fountain of life, of, I'm sorry, of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He overcomes, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And here's verse 8. This is what I wanted to focus on. But the cowardly, the old King James uses the word fearful, same, same exact meaning, of course, but I, I like the new King James uh, 
translation here, there's something about the word cowardly that really kind of hits home a little harder. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. First, notice how the Holy Spirit has linked uh, cowardice with unbelief, but the cowardly and unbelieving. That was intentional. Second, realize that being a coward is actually a sin. It's not just a character defect, but an actual sin against God. If you ask most people to list uh, sins that would result in internal damnation, cowardice would probably not even make the list, much less be number one on that list. Yet we see here that the list, it's first in the list of sins that, that will send your, your, your eternal soul to hell. Why? Because fear is the exact opposite of faith. A cowardly person, a person full of fear, cannot stand in faith. It's impossible. You can't have fear and faith at the same time. It's not possible. So Satan uses fear as a primary tool to get you to lose faith. Because if you lose faith, you end up denying Christ. And Matthew 10 to 33 says, But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. 2 Thessalonians 2 3 says, no, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, uh, the uh, son of perdition. In its original Greek, the word for falling away is apostasia, from where we get words like apostasy and apostates. Satan wants us afraid, fearful, so that we will deny the name of Christ, so that we will leave the faith voluntarily. He cannot separate us from the love of God. That is impossible. So he wants to get us to walk away of our own volition. His end goal is to, many, is to take as many Christians to perdition with him as possible. He intends to so saturate this end time church, that especially right now, this time we're coming into, he intends to saturate it so full with fear and lies that it causes the great apostasy to occur. That is coming next, guys. The Lord wants us to understand the plans of the enemy. He wants the enemy's plans exposed so that we do not fall away. So that when we're tempted to give in to fear, we can stand. Remember the story of the 12 spies sent to search out the promised land? Most of us are familiar with it. I'll read a few verses. Numbers 13 uh, 13th chapter, starting with verse 25, and they were returned from spying out the land after 40 days. And they departed, came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of, the Israel, of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, giants, oh boy. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone with him 
said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Notice that wrong perspective. They are stronger than us. Maybe so. That may be, perhaps. But they are not stronger than the Lord God Almighty. The problem is fear of man caused them to take their eyes off the Lord and to forget about what He had already done for them. Fear caused them to judge wrongly because they were looking at only the strength of their own arms and not considering the strength of the Lord. Remember how on the night when Jesus was betrayed, Peter tried to go from his calling as a fisher of men to suddenly a a warrior with a sword? John 18.10, And Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. His name is Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Of course, Peter wound up following the Lord at a distance and over the course of the night, just as Jesus had said would happen, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. Three times. The same guy that one minute's ready to rush out with the sword and take him all on. All of a sudden now he's so cowardly he denies even knowing him three times. What happened? Well, as long as Peter still believed that Jesus was going to be the Messiah who threw off the Roman yoke, he had courage. I imagine Peter was thinking Jesus was going to back his play in the garden, you know, and and Peter would be the big man that started the Messiah's big revolution against the Romans. And as soon as Peter realized that Jesus had no intention of overthrowing the Romans at that time, as soon as Peter realized that Jesus didn't come to conform to the image that we had of him, all of a sudden his courage left him. Peter lost his faith because Peter lost his courage. Peter lost his courage because Peter lost his faith. They're inextricably linked. Courage and faith go hand in hand. I can... Empathize with Peter. I can empathize with those spies. I, mean, I, I understand that fear that motivated him. I, uh, and so can you all, I think. Because we've all done shameful things out of fear. I uh, didn't really want to... <laughs> I've never told this story to anybody, and I didn't really want to, but I feel like the Lord really wanted me to tell this story because I think you guys can relate and understand. It's He wants to use it to help others. It's a part of my testimony. When I was a kid, I was, in fact, I was telling everybody here earlier, I was really skinny and small. I was, um, <laughs> I was a skinny kid with a small head and a long neck, and I looked goofy and I was acted weird. I was a, truth is, I was a weird kid, and I ended up getting targeted by pretty much everybody bigger than me, which was pretty much everybody. Ever. <laughs> I was small. Uh, junior high, high school, they were a nightmare. I hated it. I dreaded the school to the point where I could actually, if I wanted to, I could make myself sick to avoid school. I hated it that much. It, you know, getting punched, kicked in class while teachers pretended not to see it. That was bad. Staples, and they were the worst. I uh, I used to live out in the country. It was We were rural, so we had to ride a bus to school when I was there or when I actually showed up, <clears throat> there was, on our bus, there was this little girl, I want to say she was, I'm guessing, about four years younger than I was. I don't, I don't really remember. Um, she was 
possibly the only school in the or only kid in the school that was somehow lower on the social ladder than I was. I didn't know her. Like I said, she was a lot younger, but and I didn't think much of her. I, if I thought about her at all, I suppose I thought she looked kind of sweet. She was kind of nice. She seemed nice. Um, but she didn't have the best hygiene. You could tell she was very, very poor. Um, I was just happy that there was somebody not quite as low on the <laughs> lower on the cast order than I was. That's so. But one day after school, I was heading to the bus, and some kid I don't remember who it was you know, he ran by me, punched me in the arm, and said, "Hey, loser! You know, so and so, and I can't remember her name, likes you." And then he ran onto the bus ahead of me, laughing about what a dork I was. And uh, though he said her name, I can't, I don't remember it. Um, and so when I walked on the bus, I didn't know what I was expecting. And, and this little girl stood up with this very pretty, shy smile on her face, her disheveled hair. And she stood up as if to offer a seat to me. And when I realized who she was, it was like this abject wave, tidal wave of fear just hit me. I know this sounds horrible, as it was, but what in my mind was going through my mind was I could just hear what the kids were going to say. I could just, I could just see the beatings coming around the corner. What a loser this guy is, sitting with that girl. <laughs> when I realized that the, what would be the worst was that they would accuse me of being with a girl that was too young and Something just kind of snapped at me. She's standing there, and I remember the look on her face, smiling at me, and I I did the most despicable thing I can think of. I spit at her, and it landed right on her cheek and in her hair. I actually was mortified at myself. And it got worse because without a word, she didn't say a thing. She just sat back down in her seat and she never let that smile that leave her face, not for a minute. She didn't wipe the spit off. She didn't cry. She just sat there, refusing to let me know how much it hurt her, refusing to let anybody see what I, how my rejection had hurt her. I honestly have never felt this, that shame in my life. I was so ashamed of myself. I can still see her face. I wanted to, you know, sit next to her and wipe it off and tell her I'm sorry I did it. But instead, I just, like a coward, hurried back to my empty seat. There were a few kids in the vicinity who'd seen what had happened, but not not all of them. I heard a few mumbles about what a jerk I was. But for the most part, even the kids that hated me the most, they were so disgusted by what I had just done, they just sat there in stunned silence. Even these godless kids were like, what is that? I I really think in that moment I understand what Peter must have felt like a little bit. You know, what a horrible thing to do to somebody. Every once in a while, I'll, the memory of that will come to my mind. And I, I tell you, I, I don't think there's anything, anybody outside of my immediate family that I pray more earnestly for than that girl. I, I, I pray that the Lord heals her of what I did with her. But I know that I deserve God's wrath for what I did 
just that action alone, I know that I deserve God's wrath. But I also know that, praise God, he has forgiven me. And boy, what a deal. What an unmerited favor we have with God. Still, being forgiven isn't the end. The Lord wants us to learn from our sin. Not that we sin so that we can learn, but when we sin, we learn why we did what we did. And so that we don't do it again. John 21, verse 14, it says, Now this is the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying but what death, by which death he would glorify God. And when he'd spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Notice how for every time Peter denied the Lord, the Lord gave him a chance to confess his love, to confess his faith. The Lord forgave Peter for every time he denied. What a gracious and merciful God. But notice too, each time he forgave, he also gave Peter command, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my flock. He's not just gracious enough to forgive us, but he doesn't leave us there either. He, he, he demands more of us. He pulls us forward and, and, and demands more of us. He forgives and restores us. There's no other message in the world like that. No other place we can go when we, and we have messed up that badly. We can say, I'm so sorry. And he says, yeah. And not only that, but I got more for you. Who else does this except the Lord? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. One second. Remember our group of 12 spies, 10 gave the evil report, but Joshua and Caleb spoke in faith. Now we know Joshua went on to lead the entire nation of Israel into the promised land. There's a whole book in the Bible detailing his leadership. But what about Caleb? I love Caleb. Caleb is one of my favorite people in the whole Bible. He's Numbers, Numbers 14.24. But my servant, my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Joshua 14, starting with verse 6. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb the son of the of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when, sir, when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back to him, I brought back word to him as was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren went up with me. They made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot is trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you wholly followed the Lord my God. 
And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke to his, spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am, this day, 85 years old. So get this picture, this 85-year-old guy. I, I'm, the way it reads, it seems like it might even be his birthday. And he's presenting himself before Joshua to get his inheritance, which God had promised him. And he says, and yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then. So now is my strength for war, both for going out and coming in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain. (laughs) I love that. Give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard it in the day how the Anakim were there, the giants, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will will be with me. And I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Hebron is where Abraham was buried. That's why he scouted that land. He was looking for where his 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 father Abraham was buried. He wanted he wanted the best place. He was after it because it was in his heart and the Lord had put it in his heart to find that place and to reclaim it for God, God's land. I can just picture this 85-year-old Caleb leading this charge up a hill against the biggest giants, the big sword in his hand, a grin, ear-to-ear grin, just charging up the hill. We're going to get them all. I can, I can hear the giants. Right, Caleb is coming. He is coming and nobody's stopping him. He's cutting through us like we're wheat. (laughs) Because of the power of God. Because he put his trust in the Lord. But without faith it is impossible to please him. Hebrews 11.6 For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I think I I found the perfect story to both illustrate the devil's playbook and what faith looks like in the face of it. In the face of fear. it's Remember Nehemiah yeah, serving as the wine bearer to the king um, in, of Babylon at the time? And the king sees him. He's got this long face. And he never, ever, ever allowed the king to see him with anything but a smile before. Because he was a good servant. He did his job well. And one day the king noticed that it was, he, was, he wasn't downcast. And he said, what's wrong? And he said, I can't. I can't hide the fact that I'm my, I'm hurting so bad inside for my city. And the king said, you know what? You've been so good. I'm going to give you papers. You go back, rebuild the wall, rebuild your city. Amazing, amazing. God just gave him that blessing from a king, the, the king. He was the most powerful person in the world at that time. Nehemiah 6, he goes back. I'm going to read starting verse 1. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the door and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together in the villages in the plain, among the villages in the plain of Ono. And I, I think that's funny in English. Oh no. <laughs> I know that's, I, I thought, I thought it was cute. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers 
messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? That's a good question. That is a good question we all should ask ourselves. The Word of God says that we we are to work while there is daylight. It's not going to be much longer, y'all. There is not... You can see it. You can feel it. Time is condensing. It's getting quick. We're near the end, guys. Work while there is light. But they sent me this message four times and I answered him in the same manner. Then Sambalot sent his servant to me as before, the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you're building the wall, that you may be their king. Oh, nice. I like that accusation. You're going against the king that sent you there with the papers, and you're secretly doing it so you could be the king. And, you know, uh, historically, it probably was that Nehemiah probably was meant to be the king. He probably was in line to actually inherit the throne of David. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there's a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. Lies, deceptions. This is exactly what Satan's doing right now. And catch this, verse 9, for they were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it won't be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. You see how Satan uses fear to get us to stop or at least slow the work that we're supposed to be doing for God, the work that God called us to. Verse 10, it says, Afterwards I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehedabal, who is a secret informer. (laughs) And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. A little compromise. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there, such as I, who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, so that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened. Now catch this. This is I love this. When our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw those things, they were very disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work had been done by our God. <laughs> the Lord flipped it right on him. You want fear? Watch this. Flipped it right on him. Notice Nehemiah perceived the lies of the enemy. He caught on to it. How did he see through the enemy's lies? Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food belongs to those who are full of full age. 
That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Notice the words, by reason of use, exercised, discern. I'm going to paraphrase Allen Iverson, a former NBA player. We're talking practice. <laughs> practice here. We're talking practice. And that's what we are to do. That, that word of God, that's our sword. And we need to practice with it. The shield of faith, we need to practice with it. It's about practice. Every day putting it into our hearts. Every day putting it into our lives. Every day reading in, getting into the word. Every day before the Lord God, what do you want from me today? Practice, practice, practice. First Peter, first, uh, first Peter, uh, first chapter, first, uh, verse 13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6, we've all heard these verses. These are comfortable. They're like a nice pair of slippers. But put them on. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be well able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of gospel of peace. How do you do that? You practice. You practice. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I, uh, I think... This is my opinion, but I, I, I strongly, uh, let me just say, do this. Trust me on this one. Memorize the 27th chapter of Psalm as much as you can. You want, you want to have a faith building, fear destroying chapter in the Bible. You want to, you want to get power that you want to know how unshakable you are. Read the 27th Psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me. In this I will be confident. One thing, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that I will seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in the pavilion, in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said unto you, your face, Lord, I will seek. I'll stop there, but just, you want something to put into your heart that will destroy fear. Put that in your heart. You cannot go wrong with that. 
I want, I'm going to conclude this message because time's getting low, but let me conclude by reading a note that was found in this desk of a pastor uh, uh, in Zimbabwe over 100 years ago. I really want you guys to hear this. This is, uh, this is cool. Uh, it was titled, Fellowship of the Unashamed. Love that title. It starts, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudity, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. Lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer and labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but my God is reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. That note was found by somebody who was cleaning out the pastor's desk because he'd been martyred. He'd been martyred for the cause of Christ. That's the last thing anybody found of him. Yeah. That pastor conquered fear. He conquered fear. And it made him unstoppable. Uncontrollable. There's no doubt, no doubt in my mind that Satan would have preferred to not have made a martyr out of that man because we know what happens with that. But the pastor left the enemy no choice. Satan had to take him out before he did more damage to the kingdom. He had no choice. That man was uncontrollable. Satan had no hooks in him. None. Lord, I, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray that we all become so aware of the truth of who you are, so aware of who we are in you, a peculiar nation, a, a holy royal priesthood called and separated by you, a most unusual, peculiar people. Make us aware of who we are so that by your grace we overcome fear and become uncontrollable, uncontrollable. To the enemy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.